Well, before we start the second panel, just a brief moment to introduce the Gray Center's new co-director, Jen Mascott. I just want to say, as background to this, as many of you who have been at Gray Center programs for the last few years have known, the center has undergone significant growth in its programs, the number of programs, the breadth of things we're working on, ever since uh, its founding with Naomi Rao and Henry Butler. We've tried to grow and improve in as many ways as possible, and we're all very proud of the, the, the things we've done in recent years. But to continue that growth and expansion, it became clear that we needed a new partner to help chart the course of the next few years, think through new programs, new ways of reaching audiences, and new ways to bring our work to academia, to policymakers, and other stakeholders in the issues that we care about. Um, and I have to say, for position of co-director of the Gray Center, there's literally nobody I would rather work with on this than my friend and colleague, Jennifer Mascott. So let me introduce her with a few words. As many of you know, Professor Mascott recently returned from the Justice Department, where she served in the Office of Legal Counsel and also as an Associate Deputy Attorney General. Of course, the Justice Department in recent years has been very, very engaged, not just with the usual stuff of litigation, but also in thinking through the basic theory of what administrative law ought to be. And just a couple of years ago, the Justice Department issued a report really in the spirit of the reports of the 1940s, thinking through the state of administrative law and considering possible ways forward for future modernization and reform. And Professor Mascott, when she was at the Justice Department, was an integral part of that. Now, before she was at the Justice Department, and now that she's back at the Scalia Law School, she's been a very, very significant scholar on the work of, of the separation of powers and other constitutional principles at stake in modern administration and the administrative state. So she really is the ideal colleague to bring into the Gray Center's work. But again, as a friend, I just couldn't be happier with her arrival here at the Gray Center. And so now she's our co-director. So please join me in welcoming Professor her, uh, Professor Jennifer Mascott. Thanks, Adam. And now that I have to significantly lower the mic after speaking next to my very tall new colleague, but Adam could not be a better colleague. And I'm very thankful that the Gray Center has brought me on board. I'm really grateful to be back at the Scalia Law School. It was terrific to be at the Department of Justice for a couple of years, kind of living in practice some of the principles that we're talking about here and thinking through the interaction between Congress and the executive branch. It's very fitting today to be talking about the Administrative Procedure Act 75 years after its enactment. And so our second panel here is going to be talking about the life of the law, what has happened in the past 75 years since the APA's enactment in 1946. And so we've got four very distinguished scholars to talk with us. Uh, we'll hear first from the Honorable Ronald Cass, Dean Emeritus, Boston University School of Law, President Cass and Associates, then Aaron Nielsen, a professor at the J. Ruben Clark Law School of Brigham Young University. Professor Dick Pierce from my alma mater, George Washington University Law School, where he serves as the Lyle T. Alberson Professor of Law. And Stuart Shapiro, Professor Edward J. Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy at Rutgers University. And the panel's going to talk and the panelists are going to talk about their papers, which are being published by the George Mason Law Review, looking at rulemaking and adjudication in the past 75 years. And we're going to be exploring how has it been going? Have agencies been faithfully applying the Administrative Procedure Act? How have agencies and the public been impacted by the law over the last 75 years? And when I teach administrative law, I use Gary Lawson's uh, casebook, and he actually goes through um, his 
thoughts and the, and the progress of how he sees uh, the Administrative Procedure Act in practice having actually been changed quite significantly by the courts and agencies over the years, starting with um, the idea that perhaps at the beginning, um, Congress would have envisioned agencies more frequently conducting formal rulemaking and formal adjudication, but through a Supreme Court decision in the 1970s, um, suggesting that uh, formal procedures have to be followed less frequently, that then threw a lot more of agency uh, actions into to informal procedures, such as informal rulemaking. And we'll hear more from our um, panelists today about how um, that's impacted, perhaps added on to the text of the APA, which simply suggests basically that informal rules need to ha- need to include a description in their notice of the subjects that they're going to be carrying. But as you know, now today, informal, informal rules are hundreds of pages in length. And that in turn has led to agencies then often trying to find if a way to make their actions uh, fit into an exemption from the rulemaking, even those modest procedural requirements, or at least modest under the text of the APA. Um, at the same time, if we look um, at judicial review, uh, the APA calls for agency actions to be um, on the policy side uh, reviewed and, and found to be unlawful only if they're arbitrary or capricious or abuse of discretion. And so courts today obviously take a much closer look. And a lot of these, these things perhaps have come about because agencies are taking much more action. And so courts and agencies um, have attempted to figure out a way to kind of get a handle on reviewing agency action in these past 75 years as, as the actions um, expanded. So we're going to hear, um, so that's my sort of quick informal take um, that my students get a sense of as we go through the case law and the text of the APA throughout the course of the semester. Now we're going to hear from our four panelists. We're going to start first with uh, Ron Cass and his work, um, Rulemaking Then and Now from Management to Lawmaking. Well, thank you, Jen. Uh, I appreciate the the introduction, and uh, despite your use of the wrong case book, uh, we we can overlook that. I I have to start with a a brief anecdote. I'm now old enough to be in my anecdotage. Um, And this involves a a fellow who was uh, driving around uh, the back roads in the country and came across a revival tent and went in and uh, was listening to to the proceedings, the, the, the service, and at, at a certain point in the service, uh, the preacher called forth anyone who, who needed help. And a fellow came up with dark glasses and a white cane, and the preacher put his hands on and prayed. The person took off the dark glasses, threw the cane away, and said, I can see. And another fellow came up with crutches and, and limping. And the preacher again put his hands on the person's head and prayed and the person threw away the crutches and said, I can walk. And it, this went on with a, a variety of different people coming up. And the preacher then turned to the, the congregation and asked, does anyone else need help? Phil raises his hand. What do you need? I need help with my hearing. Preacher called him up, put his hand on his head, prayed and said, is that better? And the fellow said, I don't know. The hearing's not for another two weeks. <laughs> Obviously, this is an original meaning story. <laughs> the, you don't always know what, what it is that you're getting uh, when you when you see or hear uh, something in front of you. The APA is like that uh, as well. Uh, there are there are three things that we know about uh, the APA when it was concerned about rulemaking, and and the first is uh, it wasn't that concerned. 
Rulemaking wasn't such a big deal back then. Uh, there weren't a lot of rulemakings of any significance uh, to worry about. To the extent that rulemaking was something that they were worried about, they were worried about the evidentiary basis for rules that turned on precise, detailed information about technical matters, about scientific matters, about matters that had to do with evidence. For the rest, there was almost nothing that the APA had to offer except sort of basic nostrums. Let people know you're doing it. Give them sort of a general sense of what you're doing. Give them a chance to say something that may or may not be listened to. And at the end, tell people what it is that you did. That was it. And the APA, it, when you read through the stuff that was the background material, when you read through the reports, you read through uh, the arguments, there was very little concern about this. Later on, it was lauded as one of the great innovations of the APA, that it did something with rulemaking. Notice and comment rulemaking, a great thing. Why? Because it did something. That was it. It wasn't that it did something big. It did something. It said rulemaking had in some way to conform to some sort of legal constraints. That was it. And for 20 years after the enactment of the APA, there was virtually no change in rulemaking. There was no big uh, evolution of rulemaking. There was no big explosion of rulemaking. There was nothing that changed importantly for the next 20 years. In the 1960s, in the mid-1960s, you suddenly get a change. And the 1960s and 70s, rulemaking quintuples in terms of the number of pages of rules that are produced. The number of rules grows, the number of pages grows, and the interactions with both the courts and the Congress, and then shortly after that, the executive branch as well, also changes. Because a lot of the legislation that now led to new rules was new legislation, not all of it, some was old legislation, but there were new types of legislation dealing with issues involving the environment and employment and discrimination. And these often gave agencies a large amount of explicit power to do things by rules. Other agencies saw rulemaking as a good, efficient way to adopt a regulation that applied to a lot of different settings, a lot of different people, and academia was promoting rulemaking as a way that agencies should proceed, as a way that agencies ought to, to go about their business because it gave notice to people of what was coming. It gave notice to people of what sort of thinking the agency had behind the way it was going to be regulating them. This was a great thing in terms of the way a lot of academia saw this. So we went through this explosion in a 15-year period, a quintupling of the, the number of pages of rules in a 15-year in a period. And in response to that, people said, we need to do something to bring rulemaking under control. 
So one of the things that happened was the courts got involved in trying to impose additional constraints. Uh, I think Dick Pierce said that we went uh, from a period where the law said we needed a concise and general statement of basis and purpose to the legal regulation which required an encyclopedic and detailed statement of basis and purpose that every year seemed to get longer and more complicated and the different sort of ways you could fail that got longer and more complicated. We also had, at the end of this period, Chevron, which was dealing principally with policy making by rule. And then we had an, another, how many, however many years it's been since then, uh, another almost 40 years of dealing with what Chevron meant in terms of judicial review of rulemaking. We also had the executive branch say, now that rulemaking has exploded, we need to get a hold of this. We need to look at the way rulemaking is being used, and we don't want to have rulemaking sort of going off on its own with the agencies operating like many Congresses. We need to bring this under control. We need the White House to get involved now supervising what goes on to just make sure we, we know what is happening in the rulemaking process and that we have some constraints over this. You, you have uh, a change uh, of rulemaking from what it had been, which was largely a tool for internal control in the agency. It was a tool for management and, and it was a, a tool for rate making where you needed to have a rule because rates applied to everybody. Rates applied to all the railroads, they applied to all the trucks, they applied to all uh, of the, the people engaged in certain common carriage uh, that was regulated by government. So those were the, the forms that you had and you had to have that in a way brought under control. When the turn was from old form rulemaking to lawmaking by agency. It was thought to be something that you needed to have a lot of different controls over. And as that happened, we got arguments about ossification. We got arguments that the controls were too great, too rigid, too numerous. And as that happened, agencies found a lot of other ways to do things other than by formally adopting rules, at least rules of the sort that were subject to notice and comment constraints. I see that I'm told I have zero minutes left. Um, under the Migriva rule, I have another 10 minutes, but I'm going, to, uh, I, I'm going to pass on that for now on the theory that anything I forgot to say or didn't get around to say, uh, when you have questions, I can say that would have been covered during my comments. <laughs> That's great. Well, Ron, thank you very much for giving us that overview of what's happened in the rulemaking space since the enactment of the APA. And I should just briefly say a, a, a quick thing about the format of our, our panel will be similar to, uh, to Adam's. Everybody's going to speak for about seven minutes, and then we're going to have a chance for folks to comment on each other's uh, presentations or to give addendums to their early remarks. And then I will ask some, some questions in which uh, I hope to get at actually what you all think are the implications of some of the changes you're talking about. So, Ron, we heard a lot about the changes, but not yet your view on whether they work well and are appropriate. So hopefully we can explore that. And the bigger question of 
do we need a new law 75 years after the fact, or is the APA still working as it was intended to be? But before that, we're going to get to Professor Aaron Nielsen from BYU. And I should say, uh, Professor Nielsen lectures and writes in the areas of administrative law, civil procedure, and federal courts. And this term has was involved in helping to argue one of the cases dealing with administrative law that the court has yet to decide, Collins versus Yellen. So it would be fascinating to see what kind of influence his advocacy has had there. Um, but for now, we're going to hear his views on three wrong turns and agency adjudication. Thanks, Jen, for bringing up a very sore spot in my life. Um, <laughs> it, it's not like I've been every Monday and Thursday, like desperately logging in to see what's going to happen. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, all right. So a couple of years ago, um, around the same time of the, of the, of the year, the Supreme Court decided a case called Kaiser v. Wilkie. Um, and Kaiser v. Wilkie was a, it took a long time to get there. And it was about our and slash Seminole Rock deference, which is the deference an agency receives for an interpretation of its own regulations. And in Kaiser, the Supreme Court and it wasn't a, a tight majority. It was a, a pretty good swath of the court. Took a bite out of what had been called our slash Seminole Rock deference. Um, and whereas it used to be understood in many courts as a more robust form of deference than Chevron, uh, now it is, it is not. It is, they say it's not more than Chevron. In fact, they go through a whole bunch of factors to limit it further. And as I was reading that, uh, I, it, the thought struck me, but wait, how did we get here? Why, why is, you know, why did we have these doctrines as now just being cut back on? So I read Kaiser again with that question. And it was interesting. Um, Justice Kagan gave her opinion of the court's handiwork in Seminole Rock, and it wasn't especially um, favorable. Um, and, and I'm going to quote her here. She says that the language used uh, in Seminole Rock was a caricature of the actual doctrine, um, which I don't think that's, that's not high praise. Um, and so I thought, well, how did we get here? And that's kind of the spring for this paper is I'm looking at some of the ways that we're reforming administrative law now or thinking about, especially with reference to adjudication. Um, and it seems to me that a lot of it goes back to 1945 to 1947. Um, there were three things that happened during that time. Now, not everything. Adjudication would still be controversial regardless. But three things that happened between 1945 and 1947 that has made adjudication more controversial than I really think it has to be. Um, and we're starting to see the reform efforts kind of targeted at these things. So the three that I call them the wrong turns um, that I want to talk about, one is um, Seminole Rock 1945 um, and how we ended up at Kaiser. Uh, number number two is um, the APA and um, 1946. The adjudication provisions of the APA have a, a major hole in it. One, there's nothing for uh, informal adjudication, which is, as Paul mentions in his paper, that's like the huge part of, of what they do. Um, and they just kind of left it empty and courts have been struggling for a long time. And compounding that is the trigger um, for when you get to formal versus informal adjudication it's remarkable. The Supreme Court has never answered the question what that trigger is. Um, but we've ended up in a place where I, I can't imagine was actually supposed to be the trigger when they enacted the APA. Um, so what that means is we live in a world where agencies are, you know, most of what they do, a big chunk of what they do, there are no, you know, standardized procedures for. Um, so we have some kind of court made ad hoc procedures put on top of it. 
Um, and the f- procedures that we actually do know that we have in the APA's text itself, um, agencies can increasingly evade um, because there's the trigger is not sharp that leads to that. Uh, and then the third wrong turn is in 1947, uh, which is Chenery 2. And Chenery 2, you know, I suspect most people, if you are here on a Friday afternoon learning about administrative law, you know Chenery 2. Um, but Chenery 2, is, and why I think it's relevant, is uh, there they say you can make policy in adjudication, um, and you can apply that policy retroactive. Um, and, you know, I've said elsewhere, I don't think that itself is a, is, is always wrong. Um, sometimes it makes a good deal of sense for an agency to be able to do that, um, because folks had sufficient fair notice from reading the statute or something like that. Um, but there creates some dangers with that, uh, because if an agency can change the law retroactively, uh, it changes, has a dynamic effect on what you do today. Um, if you know that you know, again, this is a, this is my own caricature. If an agency calls you up on the phone and says, Hey, you really ought to think about this. Um, you can pay a lot more attention to that phone call. If you know that if you don't, they can just say, well, that's always been the law and you just broke it. Um, you're like, you can't just say, well, show me what I'm doing. That's wrong. Like point me to it. Show me what I'm doing. That's wrong. Um, because in fact they can say, well, it doesn't exist yet, but it will. Um, and that changes the dynamic of how you behave um, vis-a-vis agencies. Um, you know, this is a little bit of an overstatement, but I've said before that, you know, what is the weight, what is the anchor that gives a guidance document weight? Um, and in effect, it's January 2, a little bit, um, because if you don't do it, they can just say that's always been the law. Um, so in the last few years, we've seen reform that goes to all three of these things. Um, we already talked about Kaiser, which significantly cuts back on what our had become. Um, I think it's closer, but not quite to what the original understanding of what Seminole Rock was supposed to be all along. Um, but it only took us, you know, a 75 year detour, um, to get back. And part of that is just, it's a sloppy opinion. It wasn't very well done by the court. Often unanimous opinions, they say, are the worst ones. Um, Seminole Rock was unanimous. Um, there was a separate writing with no opinion. Um, this, the language is sloppy, and we're dealing with that. Uh, I think the APA, um, as to the adjudication procedures, was sloppy. Um, they didn't fill in the hole. Some of it was intentional, but they also didn't do a very good job with the trigger, and that's because problems that we're still dealing with. And then also as to... Uh, as, as to the third Seminole Rock, we saw the Trump administration uh, try to do some executive orders at the end, but consistent with what the administrative conference has been saying about you really shouldn't let agencies make policy through these guidance things. Um, and the Trump administration tries to say we're going to cut back on that through executive order, which, of course, as we all know, with executive orders are only good for um, either four or eight years, and then they're not good anymore. Um, so that's what I've looked at is we live in a world where, you know, three mistakes um, in a three-year period, we're still kind of suffering them through, and I'm not quite sure how we get back to that, Um, but I think it's important that we all kind of read those three years and think about where we are today. Uh, I think I made it within seven. There we go. All right. Perfect. Um, 
get a little oh, see that there we go it can be done um love it thank you aaron that's that's great so now we're going to go to professor dick pierce who is the author of over 20 books and 130 articles on administrative law government regulation and the effects of various forms of government innovation intervention on the performance of markets and today is going to be talking a little bit about his piece for the symposium issue agency adjudication it is time to hit the reset button so professor pierce if you could tell us um the ways in which you believe agency adjudication needs to be fixed and addressed. Thanks, Jennifer. So my uh, my focus is principally on the administrative judiciary and the the, the, the historical evolution of the, the 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 status of the administrative judiciary, and it's a pretty sad story. At least I see read it as a sad story. Uh, it begins in the 1930s, where there's very widespread complaints that uh, the, uh, as they were then called, hearing examiners uh, uh, were systemically biased in favor of the agencies where they presided. And there were a couple of studies of that phenomenon, and they found that, sure enough, there was a lot of evidence of uh, pro-agency bias in the way that the uh, uh, hearing examiners uh, made rulings and, and uh, issued their decisions. So what to do about that? Well, after 15 years of, uh, of, of lively debate on the subject, uh, they, they came up with the solution in, in the APA. And uh, uh, the, it really had two parts. The first part was uh, they, they identified uh, five ways in which uh, the head of an agency or, or you know, agency officials might be able to apply pressure on uh, uh, what we now call the administrative law judges to try to get them to behave in a, a, a pro-agency manner. And they came up with statutory safeguards uh, that uh, prohibited uh, any possibility of, of use of any of those five sources of, of pressure uh, for ALJs to uh, behave in a way that systematically favored the agency where they provided, presided. But they coupled that with a provision that recognized that uh, the, the agency head, uh, and derivatively the president who appoints the agency head, has to have control over the policy content of, uh, of adjudications. And so they had a provision that said that the agency can substitute its own decision for that of the administrative uh, uh, law judge. Uh, and... Uh, uh, the initial reaction of the Supreme Court to this uh, statute was was extremely favorable. In a series of opinions that the court issued in the early 1950s, the court applied uh, those provisions of the Administrative Procedure Act uh, to all agencies, every agency that came before the, the, the court, and it did so based on its conclusion that Congress had in the APA codified due process. Uh, and so we're all living for a while in a legal regime in which uh, uh, the, the, the constitutional requirements and the statutory requirements seem to converge. Uh, then in 1955, the court backs down. Uh, Congress had, in the meantime, enacted an amendment to the Immigration and Naturalization Act in which they had made it absolutely clear that immigration judges had no statutory safeguards whatsoever from uh, independence. And the court said, oh, dear, are we ready for a showdown with Congress? I guess not. So the, the court kind of disingenuously said, well, this is 
pretty much like the same thing as in the APA. And they said, so this is fine. So then what happens is uh, uh, between 1955 and the present, Congress has enacted, uh, oh, probably over 100 statutes in which it has created agency adjudication regimes. And in each case, uh, it, it chose whether to apply uh, the APA safeguards or not to apply them. And it chose not to apply them in the vast majority of circumstances. And that has created the situation we have today where there are more than five times as many uh, members of the administrative uh, uh, judiciary who uh, are not subject to any safeguards of their decisional independence whatsoever and are potentially uh, subject to pressures, uh, pro-agency bias pressures uh, at, at all times. Uh, as there are ALJs who are, have these safeguards. And in fact, of the ALJs, there's about 2,000 of them now, 95% of them are at the Social Security Administration, where frankly the, 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 the concerns about pro-agency bias are a good deal less than uh, at, at uh, regulatory agencies. So that uh, causes me problems uh, about the present state of uh, adjudication. But then things got worse in 2018 when the Supreme Court decided SEC versus Lucia. And in that case, it held that agency adjudicators are not employees, but are inferior officers who must be appointed by the agency head. And that has a bunch of implications. The uh, first in the, uh, implication is that uh, the, the court opinion uh, followed up logically by an executive order um, eliminates completely the meritocratic uh, system for appointing ALJs that the Office of Personnel Management had been implementing for decades prior to the decision in Lucia, and then just leaves completely to the discretion of some combination of agency heads and the president, uh, the criteria for selection and the procedures for appointment of of ALJs. We'll see how that works out over time. Uh, the Lucia opinion also uh, immediately placed in jeopardy uh, one of the most important statutory safeguards of the decisional independence of administrative law judges, uh, the provision that says that they can only be removed by the Merit System Protection Board uh, uh, based on a finding of, of cause, uh, that there's cause for removal. Uh, well, that may be unconstitutional uh, through application of a prior holding in the case called Free Enterprise Fund, in which the court held that, uh, that Congress cannot create two layers of insulation from presidential control applicable to any officer of the United States, uh, that one would be the absolute maximum. And uh, uh, since the members of the Merit System Protection Board, who are the only people who have the power to remove an ALJ, uh, are also subject to removal only for cause, that's a very clear violation of free enterprise uh, fund. There's a footnote 10 that says we're not necessarily resolving this uh, uh, that issue in this case, uh, but that that issue is now drifting around in in several uh, circuit courts. One of them has been right for a decision in the D.C. Circuit for over a year now. I'm still waiting for that to be handed down. Uh, but it, it's, it's quite possible that uh, the Supreme Court will apply the free enterprise fund. Uh, holding combined with the Lucia holding and as a basis for a holding that it is uh, uh, unconstitutional to insulate uh, 
uh, ALJs from presidential control by saying they can only be removed from from uh, for cause. And then we get the final one uh, that, that that I'm also waiting for that just, uh, should well it'll be handed down presumably on the 26th of this month when uh, <laughs> two thirds of the opinions is not two thirds but a hell of a lot of the opinions will be handed down in the Arthrex case. And here's the problem here that that the court in prior cases had held that you uh, if in order to be an inferior officer, the officer's uh, decisions have to be subject to review and potential reversal by a principal officer. Well, it turns out that the uh, administrative patent judges, the several hundred of them, and by the way, all of the 2,000 uh, uh, ALJs that preside in SSA case, their, uh, their deci- decisions are not subject to review and potential reversal. So uh, what the Federal Circuit held in Arthrex was that uh, those are all principal officers. They can only be appointed through the process of nomination by the president, subject to confirmation. Can you imagine with the mess we've got in the confirmation uh, process today, adding another 2,450 uh, people who have to go through that? Well, I think we've got a mess. I think it's time to, to, to rethink the whole thing. And I, I come up with a number of potential routes we might take. But I certainly agree with Chris uh, uh, in the statement that he made in the, in the prior uh, panel that this is a really hard uh, problem to try and solve. Thank you very much, uh, Dick, for that. Now we're going to go to Professor Stuart Shapiro, who um, not only has been an academic, but worked in the Office of Management and Budgets under both Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush, teaches economics, public policy, and politics, and has written three books in addition to numerous articles, and is going to talk to us, possibly as the bleakest title, but one of the richest papers, The Impossibility of Legislative Regulatory Reform and the Futility of Executive Regulatory Reform. So now we're going to here for Professor Thank you, Jennifer, and uh, and thank you for uh, for having me here. I can't tell you how nice it is to begin a talk without checking to see whether I'm still on mute or not. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to uh, pick up a little bit where, where Ron left off uh, and talk about notice, go back to talking about notice and comment rulemaking, which is wh- where I spend most of my time thinking about. Um, and sort of once we get to the point where, where Ron finished, once rulemaking stabilized in the 1980s, it really hasn't changed a whole lot since then. Um, if you took someone who engaged in the rulemaking process, uh, um, at that point, and we can sort of pick which year is the right year to start, they would very much recognize the process that we have right now. Um, and that's not really for a lack of, of dissatisfaction with the rulemaking process. Um, people who support regulation, as Ron noted, regularly bemoan the ossification of the rulemaking process, feel that it's become too laden with procedures um, to effectively serve as a policymaking instrument. Um, uh, those who oppose regulation look at the vast volume of regulations uh, and, uh, and and are not happy about that. And yes, those two arguments run directly counter to each other, which is, I think, part of the reason that we haven't seen much change to the process since. Um, but really, even under unified government, you haven't seen any legislative change to the process. Um, 
under periods of unified democratic control, when Democrats have Congress and the presidency like they do now, you never hear talk about repealing procedural requirements on the rulemaking process. You never hear about statutes to expedite rulemaking further. Um, it's not an issue that's ever really on the front, uh, front burner. Um, when there's unified Republican control, and we've really had two periods of that uh, in, in the past 40, 50 years, 2003 to 2006 and 2017 to 2018, um, you hear all, it's different. You hear a lot of talk about regulatory reform, the Regulatory Accountability Act, reins, regulations from the executive in need of supervision, um, one of the more awkward acronyms. Um, uh, you hear a lot of talk about these statutes, but the bills never really are adjusted to gain the bipartisan support they would need to overcome, particularly the filibuster in the Senate. But I think the filibuster is only one reason, one problem. You don't, uh, you don't see the statutes passed, uh, e even under unified Republican control. Um, Republicans in Congress probably don't want to constrain a Republican president a great deal. Um, and passing statutes, passing procedures would constrain the president in power at that time. Um, and those two periods, 2003, 2006, and 2017 to 2018, were very strong economic times as well. And often regulatory reform has been used as an argument to deal with a suffering economy. And that sort of rhetorical leg was not there during those periods. Um, so when have changes occurred? Um, if we count the APA um, back in, in, in 1946, um, and I'm not going to count changes to the APA that, that Chris mentioned in his, his talk earlier, like FOIA and Government and the Sunshine Act, because they didn't directly affect the rulemaking process. You've got 1946, the APA. You've got the late uh, 70s, early 80s with the Paperwork Reduction Act and the Regulatory Flexibility Act. And then you've got the Contract with America reforms, um, uh, the Congressional Review Act, SABRIFA, and the Unfunded Mandates Act. Um, I'm a social scientist, so I'm very leery of generalizing from three cases. It's a very small sample size. What I will note is that in all three cases, you did have unified control of Congress, and you had a first-term Democratic president who faced uncertain re-election prospects, um, Truman, Carter, and Clinton. Um, it's possible that we will face that same set of circumstances in 2023, not certain by any means who knows what will happen in next year's midterm elections. On the other hand, uh, those who follow Congress and such probably uh, would, would argue that polarization is so high that, uh, that, that we will not see similar movement, um, even if we see that political lineup in 2023. Um, it's also possible that the filibuster will be weakened, less likely I think that it will be eliminated. Um, that could pave the way for some regulatory reform, but again, I would not hold my breath for those. So what about the executive branch? Um, another, the other source of uh, changes that Ron mentioned to the regulatory process, at least within the political branches. Um, I agree with Jim Tozzi, who's argued that the 12291, then cemented by 12866, um, the executive orders that established OIRA review and cost-benefit analysis are the biggest changes to the rulemaking process since the AP APA. But they're almost the exception that, uh, that proves the rule. Um, other than that reform, presidential regulatory reforms now have the feeling of being very ephemeral. Um, you know, 
Cass Sunstein did a lot with nudging under uh, President Obama. There was a lot about retrospective review. Um, the two-for-one executive order uh, and the regulatory budgets that were passed under Trump um, – not surprisingly, they were repealed almost the uh, on the first day of the Biden administration. Um, we can argue whether or not these types of reforms are important in their time while that president serves. I tend to think they're overstate, their effects are overstated and, and they're overrated. Um, but it, what's not really disputable is that many of these reforms do not last past the president um, that, that implemented them. Um, so where does that leave us? Uh, the APA created the notice and comment rulemaking process, which we've talked about quite a bit. Um, and certainly judicial uh, uh, interpretations and cases have had important effects on, on notice and comment rulemaking. State Farm, Chevron, more recently, Michigan versus EPA. Um, I'm the one non-lawyer up here, so I'm going to leave those type, the effects of those cases up to my, to my legal colleagues to discuss. But the changes imposed by the political branches have largely been either cosmetic or fleeting. Um, the biggest chances for the changes to that are, I think, probably the elimination of the filibuster in the Senate and the perfect aligning of political and economic circumstances. Um, I will note, and I mentioned briefly in my article, that in Ohio and in Wisconsin, two states with unified Republican control, two states without a filibuster in the legislature, um, there have been significant changes to the regulatory process along the lines that we've seen contemplated at the federal level. Um, but in an era of partisanship and gridlock in Congress, um, I wouldn't hold my breath. Excellent. Well, thank you all very much for those opening remarks. What we're going to do now is give each panelist two minutes to respond to whichever um, comments of others they would like to or just to add to their original remarks. And then I'll have some questions and then we'll open up to the audience. So, Ron, if we could start with you. Well, I, uh, I, I first want to say you know, I, I appreciate all the, the remarks of my fellow panelists. I think there's a, a, a rich uh, field of things to comment on here, which I will not do. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I do want to just add a, a couple of thoughts on, on rulemaking. Uh, first, uh, a lot of what's happened is we've had a lot of specific things added to the plate of agencies to consider. Congress has said, look at this, 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 and this when you make rules. I think a lot of those things are well, well intended, uh, unduly ask agencies to do too much in the rulemaking process. Second, OIRA and the Congressional Review Act. I think OIRA Review and Congressional Review Act, even if they aren't used always the way anyone would like them to be, are good things because they offer opportunities for two politically responsible entities to oversee the rulemaking process, to Im impose uh, a view of public good on that process. Finally, do we need a new law? I, I don't think we need a new law. I think the, the fundamental problem is that when APA was passed, we thought that there was a limit on what could be delegated to agencies, what agencies would do, what the scope of the power of agencies was. In the intervening time, we've seen the C, uh, CFR explode to almost 200,000 pages. And I, I don't know about you, but my ability to absorb detailed little rules ends well shy of 200,000 pages. If I'm going to be subject to them and subject to enforcement of them and potentially criminal enforcement, I'd rather have it be 
more cabined, uh, more bold print, uh, bigger type, um, and not something that agencies can enact and change as easily and freely as they can. So my view is what we really need is to reinvigorate the delegation or non-delegation doctrine, and I'm happy to uh, sell out to anyone who wants to hire me to help them do that, um, as long as the price is right. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I do want to follow up and ask you a little bit more about that, because you do a nice job in your article of unfolding the reason why rulemaking actually differs from legislating and can't be just a substitute for it. So, um, But before that, uh, let me give Aaron a chance to... Sure. Whatever he would like. Yeah, so I, I think a response to all three of my co-panelists here. Uh, for Tehran, uh, I've always thought it was interesting. You know, I, read, I talked about Chenery 2. If you read Chenery 1, which is 1943, they say you can do this, SEC, do it through a rule. Um, and I don't think it was an internal organizational rule, um, and it wasn't rate-making. Um, so the idea that you that you know that rulemaking is t- entirely changed, I just don't. Again, it's before my time, but I don't think that's quite correct um, because at least they were in 1943. They were thinking of it in terms of a legislative rule. Um, as to, to Dick's point, um, I don't know if this solves the problem. I know it, it doesn't solve the problem. Um, but Kent Barnett makes the argument of. A president really ought to, as a policy matter, say, I choose to tie my arms to the mast and not, uh, not control um, what, the, what the adjudicators are going to do. Um, and you can do it by EO, you can do it by some sort of internal regulation, and that doesn't get into some of the constitutional problems uh, because the president has the constitutional authority to do something uh, because, on the theory that it's all the executive power, but says, you know what, the best use of the executive power is not to do that. Um, and I wonder if that might be a, a way to get out of some of these conundrums that, that are, that you've identified. And as to Stuart, um, I think we're doomed. Um, <laughs> our, our system is built for a Congress that legislates. Um, and if we have no legislation, um, then a whole bunch of things don't work. And then you have offsets and try to workarounds, but those all have problems of their own. And, I don't know the right answer to what you're saying because I don't think it's like any rule in Congress that makes Congress not act. I think it's broader social situations and maybe at the margins we can fix it. But I think we just live in a very divided society and people don't quite know what they want to do and we disagree pretty strongly about things. And until that changes, I think we're doomed and I don't know if it's going to. So I am not at all optimistic. I'm even less optimistic than you, I think. Um, (laughs) Okay. And on that note, let's see if Dick can give us some hope. (laughs) Hey, I'd like to really uh, bring a little optimism to this party, but I don't have any with me today. The, uh, um, and actually, you know, Kent's, uh, Kent, I, uh, as you know, we've discussed this quite a bit, and I, I mean, I agree that, that 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 would be a nice second best approach. However, uh, it, it has the characteristic that uh, Stewart characterizes fleeting. Uh, it's, you know, I, I, my guess is Joe Biden would do something like that. Uh, there are presidents who would not do something like that, uh, who would do exactly the opposite and say, apply as much pressure on them as you possibly can. And so, you know, we're, we're dependent then completely on on uh, the, the president or if the president chooses not to act at all on the, the agency's heads uh, themselves. To And, and, and I'd, I'd feel a lot better if there were statutory safeguards. Uh, 
Uh, and, I, and I'm just going to abuse the privilege of the podium for, for a minute, and, and I'm going to pose a, a question to my fellow panelists uh, uh, that, that uh, I'm always curious about. Uh, so uh, every, several people on this panel and on the prior panel have mentioned the fact that the uh, uh, notice and comment provisions of the Administrative Procedure Act, as interpreted by the courts, bear no resemblance whatsoever to the text of the Administrative Procedure Act. Well, we have an interesting situation today because, as uh, Justice Kagan uh, famously said uh, in an opinion about a year ago, we are all textualists now. Uh, all nine of the justices, or maybe all eight of them, uh, uh, claim to be textualists. Are, are they going to now uh, revisit those interpretations? Uh, here's one piece of evidence that suggests they might. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh, when he was Judge Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit, once wrote a, a concurring opinion in which he said, well, I have to go along with this because it's, it, it, it's circuit law. But, but, but it's all wrong. It's absolutely, it, it, it's totally inconsistent with the, the text. It's completely Ill, illegitimate. Uh, courts have no business imposing. Uh, I don't think that textualists are going to be textualists in this context. But I'm intrigued by the question and wondered if any of my fellow panelists had views on that. Thank you, Dick. That's great. And I do. Obviously, folks should feel free to address that in, in their remarks. I mean, obviously, one challenge there is, you know, how frequently do ad law questions make it to the Supreme Court? They obviously come before the D.C. Circuit a little more. But before we get a more open discussion, I do want to give Stuart a chance to respond to sure. some of remarks. Just two, two very quick points. I, I, I like Ron's framing of, of, the, uh, of OIRA and CRA's role as really one of political accountability, and I do think that that's one reason that those are both important reforms that I, that, that I um, certainly hope last. The CRA, I will note, only gets used, though, when uh, because it requires a presidential signature, only gets used to transition, uh, transition periods. Um, and as to Aaron's point um, about Congress, um, I think in some ways that the problem is in, in some ways even more challenging and that <laughs> raises the because of a question that was asked in the first panel. Um, Congress has incentives to delegate, incentives to punt even beyond sort of their political challenges and coming together and, and reaching statutes. There, uh, the, there are uh well-established and I think, I think correct, um, models to talk about why Congress does delegate to the executive branch, um, in an, in an effort to sort of avoid accountability for particularly difficult, uh, decisions. And I, I don't know that that, even if we, we may get across the partisanship, I don't know that we get across that other problem. Well, thank you all very much. And similar to Dick, I'm going to now take the moderator prerogative and just question everybody here on the panel um, in the way I like to leave the discussion so you all can push back if you want. But, Ron, I would be interested in you telling us a little bit more. I mean, you said that you think the big problem is delegating the fact that we've got more rulemaking just in general. And your piece talks a little bit about the differences between rulemaking and legislation. I wrote a little bit about this in a piece on the Customs Law and GW Law Review. But can you tell us why... What is the categorical difference? Why do you see delegation as a core issue to think about? If you look at the Constitution, if you ever have a picture of the Constitution as one sheet, what you see is that more than half of it is devoted to how we write laws, because that's, that's the big thing that gets government going. It's writing the law. And we have a system that says you need to have 
different people elected at different times by different constituencies, elected or selected at different times by different constituencies that serve different lengths of time, that represent different people, that have different interests, and we need them all to get together and then hand it over to the president to either agree or disagree, which may up the ante for what Congress has to do. It's designed to make making laws difficult. Because we don't want a lot of rules from the government telling us what to do. That's what the Constitution's about. Agencies aren't set up that way. They don't work that way. They're not intended to be that way. We, we do, to, to Aaron's point, we do have uh, policy making by rule before the APA. But it wasn't big policy making by big rule so common as it is today. Once that takes over, and we have between 10 times and 25 times as many rules adopted each year as laws adopted each year. Um, once we have a shift to agency lawmaking, all the sort of constraints the Constitution put in place which were so critical to the founding, so critical to the framing of the Constitution, are essentially being subverted. Um, I, I know that, that we have a lot of argument here about how optimistic we should be. Uh, I, I know that, that uh, I heard the definition of the difference between an optimist and a pessimist. An optimist thinks we live in the best of all possible worlds, and a pessimist is afraid he's right. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you. That's very helpful, Ron. And, you know, we think a lot about actually with administrative law about what it means to have executive power. And I do wonder sometimes with the points you're raising with delegation in Congress, if we had scholars and folks take a look at the original meaning of legislative power and its character, if that would help sort of give us a little bit of orientation about how to address some of the problems that you raise. Aaron, one thing that you said that intrigues me is you do seem to put a lot of optimism actually into the application of Kaiser and believe that it's going to constrain deference. And I wonder if you think, I mean, the Supreme Court, I think, did pronounce some limitations, but do we think they're going to be effectively carried out by lower courts who now case by case have to figure out how to apply Justice Kagan's rules? Um, and then the second uh, question, your, your piece talks optimistically about the two transparency EOs from the Trump administration, which the first day in office, President Biden actually revoked, which I found intriguing because I always thought those EOs were a little bit more innocuous than some of the others. So I wonder if you have thoughts about how to replace them, them moving forward, or why do you think the Biden administration went after those rules right off the bat, or EOs right off the bat? Oh, yeah, I guess I'll answer those in turn. Um, I, I don't know, optimistic about Kaiser. I mean, it's, you know, breaking the fourth wall a little bit. Um, when you write things, um, you are describing but also creating um, and I like to think um, that courts will read Kaiser as to mean what it says. Now, maybe that's not true, um, but I think that they will. Um, I also, again, look at the history of this. We're still talking about Seminole Rock from 1945. So I have no idea how the world will look, you know, 75 years from now. Um, but I like to think that law matters, and I like to think that judges do their very best to follow the laws set forth by the Supreme Court. So... In that sense, I am optimistic. Um, you know, whether that actually changes, we'll, we'll see. Um, as to the EOs, um, yeah, I mean, 
we knew that was going to happen. Um, it, every Trump EO on administrative law is is gone. No, no, um, not, not the mens rea one, I don't think. Um, the one saying that you have to have. So that's actually, so I should have raised that contrast. So they got no. rid of the one that says, tell people what you're doing, but they left on the books the one that seems to be tougher on criminal law, which to me, that would have been the more impactful one to get rid of. But I mean, I guess the, the, my bigger point, though, is... Um, this goes back to sort. We we shouldn't have to live by EO. Um, we need to have other sorts of you know either or the, either statutes or I, I think often just political culture is what really is the most powerful thing. I mean, Judge Brown, who I clerked for in the D.C. Circuit, used to use a quote from John Adams saying that without civic virtue, it's like a whale through a net. Um, that nothing you can do. It's all words on a page. It doesn't matter. Um, and I think that there is wisdom in that. Um, and that's why I would like to have a world where presidents have the constitutional power to, to say how adjudication works, because I see that's how Article 2 is. Uh, but nonetheless say, but that would be a very bad use of Article 2. Um, and so I choose not to do that. That's If we had a culture where that would work, of a civic virtue, we could a lot of these things would fall away. But I worry that we don't live in such a time, and then I don't know what to do. Okay. Thanks, Aaron. And so, Dick, now I know you have concerns in agency adjudication with electoral accountability on both the back end with removal, which we have yet to see how that's going to play out on the courts, but also the front end with appointment. And you've mentioned Lucia um, today, and I know other times that we've talked. And I'm curious, um, because we've now been for three years under the regime of Lucia and um, that executive order that had provided for um, ALJs to be able to be um, appointed free from the civil service requirements, which actually the last time I checked is another EO that I believe still remains in place. Um, and I had the privilege um, with Matt Wiener's uh, supervision to co-author a study with uh, Jack Bierman, who's on the opposite end of the spectrum of me in views of agency power on ALJ hiring after the Lucia decision. And we found that um, actually most agencies and, and even ALJs liked the change and that agencies were implementing it with their own set of um, competitive hiring constraints, but subject to the supervision of the department head. So I was curious if you could tell us what specific problems you have seen um, on the flip side with carrying that out that maybe didn't come out in that report that we drafted. Um, well, I, I was encouraged by your report, uh, and, and uh, I, I hope that remains the case, that, that um, most agencies at least are, are responsible in the way they exercise that discretion. I am aware of uh, the, the uh, one case, this is a, not data, but an anecdote uh, Although Stuart knows that for us lawyers, two anecdotes equal data. Uh, <laughs> uh, they, uh, where where uh, an ALJ who had never had any experience doing anything at all except being an assistant to another uh, ALJ, uh, the, who happened to be the chief ALJ, was then hired uh, as an ALJ. Uh, so it's, I, I don't think it's... Uh, Uniformly good news, I'd put it that way. Um, uh, I, I did have a couple of other um, points. Well, one, one on on uh, uh, Aaron's discussion of uh, our Seminole Rock and Kaiser. We, we can add a little bit of empiricism there. Uh, I did a study of uh, uh, before Kaiser. I did a study of 
all of the opinions issued by circuit courts over about an eight-year period uh, in which they cited either, relied on either Seminole Rock or Hour, uh, and uh, that uh, really um, reinforced uh, uh, Aaron's representation that the, the, the verbiage in the Hour and Seminole Rock test is, is very misleading caricature. In fact, courts never applied it that way. Uh, they, they upheld uh, agency interpretations of agency rules 76% of the time. So it's not like a, an automatic you, you always win uh, rule. And after Kaiser, somebody else did a, a study of what, what has happened since then, and it's gone down from 76% to 68%, which tends to uh, support Aaron's uh, optimistic belief that judges actually pay attention to uh, Supreme Court opinions and do their best to to apply them. I did have one question for Ron, really. Uh, I, I'm with you completely on the, the, the Constitution spending a lot of time on the process of enacting legislation, and they wanted to make it hard. But, but what happens if we reach the point where Congress no longer writes laws at all that are relevant to any of these subjects, and every time there's a new problem? Okay, Internet. Internet. Oh, we'll apply the 1934 Communications Act and try and figure out. Uh, that, to me, is the source of an awful lot of the frustrations in our field today, that Congress simply no longer, they used to do a lot of delegating. Now they no longer do anything in this space. Ron, do you want to respond? Uh, yeah, I, I'm... I would say I'm happy to, but that may overstate it. Uh, <laughs> certainly, uh, one of the things that limits the amount of law writing is the ability to delegate freely. And when you constrain that, when you when you raise the price of delegation, presumably we'll get less of it. It doesn't eliminate entirely uh, the the sort of impetus to do that. But it certainly does make it more difficult to do. The other thing is that not everything has to be governed by law. Not everything has to be regulated. Not everything has to be controlled by the federal government. And I think that if we make it more difficult to simply hand over broad regulatory power to agencies, we make it more uh, important, more more. Uh, likely that Congress will focus on this. We're not going to get rid of all the political problems, but I think we will make life better net. Okay. Th that, th thank you, Ron. So then I'll go to, to Stuart, and, and I want to kind of build on Ron said. So he's, I guess, positing that if we just sort of stop delegating and increase the pressure on Congress, that will help. I'm wondering if you agree with that. Do you think that staffing up, does Congress need more lawyers, more experts? What would help them to be able to legislate more frequently? So I, I do think that Congress probably needs, uh, does need more staff, uh, more lawyers. I think it needs more members too. I mean, they, we have not expanded Congress um, in a hundred years now, and the population has grown by two or three times as much, which means that members in the House do not represent two or three times as many people as they used to do. It means the capacity for oversight is uh, is, is decreased because at the same time, what the executive branch does has increased dramatically. 
dramatically. So would this solve our problems? Uh, I don't know. But I do think that it would be a start towards, uh, towards thinking, uh, towards increasing the capacity of Congress to address these problems and, and think about them. So that's interesting. So I do, I do want to get to audience questions, but I want to follow up on that because I mean, how would that cut? So some folks think if you, let's say we doubled the size of Congress or tripled that then all of a sudden maybe it's ch- more challenging to make decisions. But are you saying that instead what would happen is folks would have to spend maybe less time in their districts, less time campaigning because you're earning fewer votes. Maybe more people can collectively form small groups with expertise. Like what's, what are the political science realities of making it a bigger body? Uh, I, I think the, the simple and cop-out answer is we don't know, right? We, we, well, which of these scenarios? It might be both of them. It might be that um, we get uh, that Individual members do not have to spend, uh, do not need the financial resources to campaign in a smaller district that they need in a larger district. It may be that if we think about founders' intent, they're closer to their constituents if there are fewer of them. Um, there are all sorts of things that, that could happen there. Um, would we get more people in Congress that we just sort of shake our head when they come across <laughs> our Twitter feed? Absolutely. Um, if, if it's bigger and, and that may be part of the price to pay. Um, you know, which way that cuts in terms of legislative efficiency. I think my, my instinct is that it would, would improve things, but, um, but yeah, there are definitely questions there. Excellent. Well, thank you all so much for um, bearing with my questions and responding to each other. Now, if folks in the audience have questions, we're going to pass around microphones and, um, if folks could, um, Keep it to questions. That would be great. And we'll try to just have the, whichever panelist is most suited uh, answer them. But we've got about 20 minutes. If folks have things they'd like to talk about um, here in the front row. I want to ask Mr. Shapiro to talk about when you talk about reforming Congress. How about the effect of gerrymandering where right now the congressmen pick their constituents rather than the constituents pick the Congress? I think that's an element of uh, that has to be discussed in terms of making Congress effective because uh, the primaries are the uh, predominant mode of picking the congressman. So that's going to increase polarization. How do you address that? Yeah, I mean, gerrymandering has become much more efficient with advanced technology that we have now. I mean, gerrymandering's always been there, but we've gotten better at it, um, which is not necessarily a, a good thing. Um, it definitely does increase sort of extremism in, in Congress because of the primary effect that you, you make. How increasing the size would, would affect that, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, gerrymandering is, is, is a problem, but it's also one that we have to live with. I don't think given, and I am not a, uh, a lawyer, but given what I've seen in, in the Supreme Court um, on this area, it's not going away anytime soon. I, I can... And a little bit something, something, a suggestion there. Uh, there was actually an op-ed in the Post about a week ago now by, uh, uh, co-authored by the former head of the Republican Party in the state of Pennsylvania and the former head of the Democratic Party in Pennsylvania. And they said, the most important thing we can do is replace party-based primaries with open primaries. Uh, that will get you much more movement toward the middle. It will tend to reduce this this uh, this terror of being primaried uh, that that induces every Republican to move far right and stay there, and every Democrat to move far left and stay there. If you go to open primaries instead, you, you wind up electing different people with very different uh, incentives. Uh, thanks. Uh, let me play devil's advocate. I don't actually believe this, but I want to see nonetheless <laughs> what your answer is, right? So, um, 
it, what I do believe is that, or or tend to believe, is that Congress is hopeless. In the incoming class, there were several Congress incoming congressmen who declined to hire staff, right? And the the reason was, uh, what would I need? staff for. It's a performative office, right? The apotheosis of a modern congressman or woman is Marjorie Green. She totally understands that she doesn't have to be on any committee. She doesn't want to write legislation. She wants to sort of compete for airtime with the biggest loudmouth in the country and the one with the biggest microphone. Suppose that is true. There were, and, and maybe that literature still exists, but I remember a decade ago there were Lots of people, not in my political camp, who argued that agency rulemaking is much more democratic and sensible than congressional legislation. At least these people have to give you reasons. At least they have a vague sense of what they are doing. At least they have to listen to everybody with a stake in, in, um, in the proceedings. None of that is true of Congress. So why don't we focus on saying, okay, fine, if that's the problem, I mean, we don't get any legislation. Let's make this damn rulemaking process work as well as it will, because that's democracy. I agree with the devil. So, 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 Ron, I think that's a direct counter not to the your desired response, Dick. To, to your whole thesis. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm not a big devil worshiper. Um, I, I, I think that the argument that having uh, unelected people in the bureaucracy make laws is more democratic than having Congress do it is kind of a hard argument to make. I, I do think you may make the argument that they may do a better job of it, and a lot of people have talked about how good a job they would do. I, I think unless you can get consensus among elected officials on something, it's probably something we're better off not doing. Even if it's something I want to do, I think we're better off waiting till we have consensus. And the whole point, when you go back and you read a lot of what was being said around the time of the founding by the people engaged in it, a lot of what they were saying is we don't want something that's too easy to do. We don't want something where you can rush through on the basis of one set of people's views of what to do, a temporary uh, majority a minority that's intensely interested. We don't want that to be what rules the country. We want it to be something on which we all have uh, engagement and we have engagement in different parts of the country and by different people with different interests. So uh, I'm still in that camp. And even if it makes lawmaking difficult, I think we're better off waiting to make laws until we have that sort of consensus behind it. Dick, did you want to say more? I, I, I just think we've reached the point where without major changes in the way that we select candidates and also major changes in the way we select the gatekeepers who determine what gets on the floor of the House and Senate. we got to make a change there, too, to require a supermajority to, to uh, uh, choose the gatekeepers. Uh, unless and until we make those changes, I think we will get no laws that are relevant to any of the subjects we're talking about. Uh, uh, Congress is, is just 
incapable of doing that today and, and saying, well, we'll give them more incentive by, by throwing out all the laws that they've previously passed under the non-delegation doctrine. It's like saying, uh, yeah, we'll get Pierce to, to run the 100-meter the dash in eight seconds by telling him there's a billion dollars if he does it. Uh, that ain't going to work. Uh, giving somebody the incentive to do something when they have no capacity to do it is not going to work. Can, would you follow up a little bit on your point? So, and explain more how you see the supermajority gatekeeping working in a positive way. So what happens now, I, I spend a lot of time actually, uh, I, I should tell you, uh, talking with, with uh, uh, well, they go by two labels, the Problem Solvers Caucus and the, the No Labels Caucus. Uh, this is a group that's run mainly by Bill Galston of, of members of each party who sit down and try to work out deals. They've got one pending right now. Okay, and I, I think uh, they, they have cut a deal that, that five Republican senators and the five Democratic senators sat down and they negotiated a deal uh, to, to for the infrastructure package. Uh, I predict it's not going to work because the gatekeepers won't let it work. And, and they can't let it work because they're elected by the members of their party. Okay. And, and if, if you're uh, Nancy Pelosi, you've got to be very concerned about losing your leadership position if you do something that angers the progressives. If you are uh, uh, whoever's running the Senate these days, you've got uh, those concerns dominate. And, and so we've got to have a new selection, a way of selecting the gatekeepers, uh, coupled with a new way of, of selecting the candidates for office. Or we will simply not have a legislature that is capable of legislating. I see Ron wants to make a quick response. And I'm going to see, I don't know if anybody on this side of the room has a question. Just one quick thing is, I think it's difficult to know how things will change. But when we, when we make a change, a lot of different things change with it. And we, we've made changes in the past to the way we select senators, to the way uh, states can organize their districts, their voting district. Each one has had follow-on changes. And I think we will find a lot of things change when we make one change in the system. Yeah, although, I mean, some of the cha- ver- the various changes we're talking about all themselves are subject to different constitutional requirements, right? I mean, some of them would require an amendment that requires just such a huge consensus among the country that the idea that we're going to amend it and then be able to quickly modify it because we found it didn't work right is hard- more challenging than some of these others, which might be internal rule-changing mechanisms within Congress or whatever. So um, it's interesting to sort of ponder and think through. I want to make sure in scanning. Oh, good. Okay. Yes. Question. Second row. Yes, Donald Elliott, um, Scalia Law School. Um, I had a question for the for the panel generally uh, as to what extent the the mobilization of Congress and the inability of Congress to pass legislation is attributable to the expanding role of the filibuster in the uh, in in the Senate, uh, which could, of course, be undone by uh, a vote of uh, 51 to change change the rules. I do agree that a lot of the uh, emphasis on the administrative state was as a result of a, a perception uh by both the courts and, and others that Congress was incapable of fulfilling the, the role or was at least not actively fulfilling the role that the founders had originally uh, envisioned. But I guess my question is, 
uh, could could this all change if we eliminated the filibuster? Because if you if you look at the uh, the House, the House has passed legislation about many many things. They just can't get it through the uh, through the Senate. So, to what extent do we have a problem that's a little bit narrower than than uh, just dismissing Congress as a whole? Sure, I'll take a crack at it. But um, I, I definitely think that the filibuster is some of the problem uh, and the way it has sort of changed uh, over the past generation or a couple of generations, really, um, to, to, to essentially require 60 votes in the Senate for any meaningful legislation besides budgets. Um, and then you try and tack as much onto a budget as possible. Um, what I will point out, though, is that I, I, I think it's just part of the problem. The uh, the Congressional Review Act does away with the filibuster uh, for repeals of, of regulations. And despite that, the Democrats um, only repealed three of what was really a field of 100 or 200 regulations that presumably they had, uh, they had substantive challenges with, uh, substantive difficulties with or disagreed with. Um, now some of that is maybe they didn't have a majority to do it. Some of that is the Senate calendar, um, and other factors, but it also points out that it's not just the filibuster that, that slows things down there. But I do think it plays, it definitely plays a role. And if you, even if you weaken the filibuster, there have been some talk in the wake of Manchin's op-ed last week that maybe he would agree to weakening it to 55 votes. Um, it used to be 67 and moved down to 60. One could see it in different times moving down to 55. One should see a marginal uh, in, improvement in, in the function of Congress with that. Well, I, Anybody else in that? Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure whether that's an improvement or not. Um, we've made a number of changes to the cloture rules over time. Uh, one is, as Stuart said, we have uh, in the last uh, few decades reduced the number of senators it, it took to get closure. The other is we eliminated the requirement of an actual filibuster right. uh, and replaced it with a, a nominal uh, filibuster. And that may be another thing that uh, we could look at. But I, I, I also think that there's a, a real reason to appreciate consensus in the Senate. There's a reason why the framers said that, that the Senate was the saucer into which the, the tea was poured to let it cool and let passions uh, cool on that. So I, I, I'm, I'm not sure it's e as easy to answer as do we want more legislation faster? Yeah, if I can go, just one thought on this. I, you know, I, I said we're doomed. Um, and, but, but part of it. But you said it in a good way. But, 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 but part of the problem, it's a deep, this is even outside of my land. This is, this is me as con law person. Um, part of the problem is that Congress is being asked to do things that Congress is never designed to do. Um, there's a temptation, always a temptation for issues like crime and things of that sort. Um, to be a political tool, um, because that's what people most care about. Um, that's, that's what we, that's what people vote about. People vote about schools and crime and buses and, um, and what's at the grocery store. That's voting issues. Um, and that wasn't how the system, the federal system was built. The federal system was built to keep those things out of the federal system and keep them local. Um, but there's a temptation all along because that is a, that is how you get your voters, is to bring that into your vortex. Um, once you have everything that, that Congress is responsible, you know, in quotes, responsible for, well, of course we're going to disagree about everything because everything is up for grabs. Um, for the system to really work, you would need to move 
you know, a lot of that stuff away from Congress and Congress be a much more boring body that deals with things that are truly national or international in character. We're so far away from that um, that I say we can tweak the voting rules or whatever, but that's not going to get to the deep problem. We're just going to have more polarization because it's built in. Um, we've taken every possible thing you can fight about and made it a federal issue. Well, no wonder we fight. Yeah. Um, yes. In the back row. Uh, thank you. A great panel. Will Yabin from, from the Cato Institute. Just actually a super brief comment. Um, I, I thought I was down on Congress, but, uh, but my, my pessimism pales in comparison to what I've seen um, from, from this panel. But I, I guess I'm going to come to Congress's defense. And uh, uh, Chris Walker can definitely fill in any details I get wrong here. But a few years ago, the Regulatory Accountability Act, which had some really good ideas in it, you know, endorsed by ACUS, um, it got two votes away. It got 58 or a whip count of 58 votes in the Senate and a lot of substantive, serious discussion around it from a lot of, um, I guess, our few serious senators. Um, but, you know, I throw that out there. It is, it, I, too, am pessimistic about the state of Capitol Hill. Nonetheless, in this sphere, there was serious movement on a serious reform bill not but a few years ago. I, I think as long as there's a filibuster, you can't call it the state of Capitol Hill yet. <laughs> And yes, one more question in the back row. My name is Yaya Fanusi. I don't have a question. I just have an observation. And thank you. Three years ago when I came to this program, the critique I made was that all the panelists were attorneys. And they're talking about the administrative state. They should get somebody from political science or somebody who is a professor of performance, organization performance analysis. I'm glad you guys have made an improvement. Thank you. So <laughs> <laughs> right. that's, that's a lot of pressure. Our token, our token. Stuart is our hero. So I think we have time for one more question, if anybody, or more praise. We'll take that too. <laughs> the, uh, Daniel Shapiro in the back room. My former research assistant. Can I call him out for that? <laughs> Hi, Dan Shapiro from Consovoy McCarthy and former uh, CSAS uh, RA and uh, Professor Mascot RA. Um, I was just wondering uh, if the panelists had any views on uh, the effect, the post-46 uh, breakdown of the public-private rights distinction and particularly the new property revolution on uh, agency adjudication. Wow, that's a big subject. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you got the new property side of it, which, of course, exploded uh, the the scope of the due process clause uh, and Goldberg and, and a whole bunch of other opinions issued around the same time. But then you've got the, the, the private public distinction uh, that, that has been litigated over the last, uh, what, 50 years, uh, uh, as the, the power of agencies to adjudicate. And, and, uh. So, so Dick, just uh, to frame it though, do you have, like, so you think agency adjudication should change? Do you think it should change differently based on whether it's public rights or private rights? Or do you see them all as a piece being handled the same way? Well, as I interpret the latest Supreme Court opinions on the power of agencies to adjudicate, what the, Chief Justice was saying on behalf of a five justice majority, the fractured court was, um, that, that agencies don't have the power to adjudicate private rights disputes unless they are, uh, basically integral to 
a regulatory regime that the agency implements. And hence, that it makes sense to say, well, we'll roll that into the process. But, but generally, they don't have the power at all to adjudicate private rights disputes, only public rights disputes. I mean, for, for what it's worth, in my paper, I say um, adjudication is more controversial than it has to be. Um, and that's what I'm talking about. Like, the things I'm saying are, we, let's clean that up, and then let's have, that's, I think, the big fight, which is, can you do that? Um, and I think for what it is worth, um, you know, now it's just guessing, um, I think that we're a world where there might very well be five justices who care a great deal about that, that distinction that you are saying, and that might play out um, in, the next, in the next little while. But those are the big fights but we're not even get to the big fights because we have all these these I, I think they're ridiculous fights um, about like you know, we're going to change the rules after the fact and things of that sort. That should by any standard that should not be okay. Um, so let's clean that up and then we can have some of these other fights. But we're not even there yet um, because we have things that strike me as. What kind of world is it where you can possibly change the law after the fact on somebody? Although, um, although alternatively, I mean, some of those questions, right, have less of a stake if what agencies in general are doing is a smaller piece of the pie because we have a robust definition of private rights. But anyway, on that note, so you all will have to come back to another center event for a discussion <laughs> of that. Or I know later this year we're going to be certainly thinking more about Congress and how it can step in. And is there a way can, it can frame agency action uh, more positively in the future? But thank you all very much for joining us today. Thank you to the panelists. And we hope to see you at our next event. Thank you.